speaking to the ingenuitive spirit of America and their youth. Remember when Girl Scout cookies, just someone in the office would basically bring in the menu? You take home whatever you want. Times are tough now. The girls are actually having to hit the streets again a little bit. And you could set up outside a grocery store, seen them outside of shopping centers or malls, you know, places where people come or go. Or if you're an industrious group of young ladies in Chicago, you could set up outside the dispensary. That's correct. As they, uh, the profit margin through the roof as they sold hundreds and hundreds of boxes. It sounds like a match made in heaven, doesn't it? Set up the Girl Scout cookie stand uh, right outside the dispensary, which are now apparently legal in Illinois. Who knew? It's not easy being an entrepreneur. It's not easy in any way because you don't have anybody telling you what to do. You don't have somebody saying, okay, here's the system. You got to go figure that out. That's another piece of advice that I would give. If you're going to develop something, if you're going to go into software at some point in time, then... If you're bored, that's the worst. If you're bored, you cannot be doing your highest level of work. Go after something not only in a market and industry that you're interested in, but also in a job that you're interested in doing the work. And for me, like building a company, that was always the most exciting part. Two quick announcements before we get started with this interview. First announcement, if you're interested in using the Hubstaff product that you're about to hear about in this episode, Well, Dave, he was kind enough to offer us two months free for our listeners. So after this episode, just go to hubstaff.com and enter the promo code YOLO, that's Y-O-L-O, for two months free. And our second announcement, I just want to give a shout out to our newest Patreon members. So thank you to Jim French, Dylan Chen, Ashanti Cook in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and Tam Young in Chicago, Illinois. Well, speaking of Patreons, well, we just had our first group Patreon call. It actually went really well. See, our Patreon members had a chance to meet one another and ask me and my co-host any question about their business. We hit on several topics on our first call. Things like how one Patreon member could save over $100,000 on the creation and development of their mobile app. Plus, we talked about how to find, hire, and train your very first virtual assistant. And last but not least, We talked about how to stay motivated when you're in the first stages of your new business. So if you're interested in getting help with your hardest business challenges and you want to meet other smart business owners that listen to this very podcast, well, then you have to become a Patreon member. We're going to start capping the number of participants for each monthly Patreon call. So if you want to reserve your spot for our next meeting, then be sure to sign up as a Patreon member today. And you can figure out more information on becoming a Patreon by checking your episode description below. So that's it for our announcements. As usual, thanks for tuning in to this episode, and we hope you enjoy it. I'm Dave Navote. I am the founder of Hubstaff. I live in Fishers, Indiana, which is just outside Indianapolis. My company does time tracking, and it is a kind of a workforce management software. We've got about 10,000 paying customers right now. And most of them are small businesses. So there are a lot of digital marketing agencies, software development companies. We've got construction, we've got cleaning, you know, that kind of thing. But the core of our company is time tracking and basically helping business owners pay their invoices easier, understand how much to invoice their clients, 
And then it's also how much to pay their employees. And we kind of automate a lot of systems, help prioritization within the company, just really help the owner streamline their businesses so they can spend time on growing the company or just invest time in other areas that they need to do. And how old are you? 39. About to be 40 soon? Yep. Looking forward to it? Yeah, I guess. I'm happy I'm here. So how long have you been running the company? We founded it in 2012, so seven years now. You told us about 10,000 customers, small business customers, if you will, but can you give us an idea of like employees and revenue? Yeah. So we have about 55 people currently all over the world. We're fully remote. There's no office. So we got people all over Europe, all over the US, Philippines, South America, Canada. So kind of split across the whole world. And then revenue, I think we're at like 6.3 million annual. Oh. Did you ever envision yourself having a company like this, a fully remote company where you're working out in Indianapolis and you say you got people all over the world working for you? It just kind of happened along the way. I mean, I did not sit down with the vision to build this thing the way it's really worked out. I've been running companies since like 2003. I've always been used to the remote kind of style. And basically, there was not a moment in time. We just kind of started hiring people remotely, finding talent overseas, helping to work with them and figure out the best way to do it. And just it had been a gradual kind of space. I think we started with the goal of being having $10,000 a month or something like that, you know, in revenue. So it's just been a long process along the way. Has it been harder or easier than you thought? I would say like right now, it's just different. I think that it's hard currently because of people and management. I'm doing different things than are my core strength. My core strength is creating the idea, researching the market, understanding impact. You know, I've got so many of those ideas and I can also execute early. But then right now, it's more about, okay, let's find the team. Let's put in even COOs and executives. We're getting to the level and it's like, I've just never done it before. So I don't know how to hire that. So I think it's difficult from those regards. And our product is extremely complex. Our product is very hard. Luckily, my co-founder does all of that or the vast majority of that. So I don't need to think about that. That's not my mind space too much, but our product is very complex. And I would say that has been harder for sure than what we had originally envisioned. But from a business standpoint, I would say easier, honestly. But yeah, dealing with the people is the harder thing sometimes, especially if you're good at researching, kind of figuring out numbers and what strategy you want to do, like dealing with whatever issues people have within your workplace. Like you said, a totally different kind of experience and maybe something that, you know, people don't necessarily plan on once you get to a level that you're at, right? I want to make it simple as we can for anyone who doesn't maybe understand your software. So is there an easy like case study or something that we can give people before we start getting along your story and how you built up your company? Yeah. So let's say an agency owner, like a digital marketing agency, they build websites. And our software, by the way, is primarily for teams that are on the go and away distributed teams. They're not sitting in an office altogether, huddled together. So that our software has a lot of those impacts to it. So an agency owner building websites lives in Cleveland, Ohio. He's got a web designer out in California, salesperson in New York, two developers, let's say in the Czech Republic, and then some customer support people scattered throughout Canada. The main problem there is he doesn't know what people are doing, how they're doing it, what they're working on. He doesn't talk to them a whole lot because they're not in the same even time zone, probably working on Slack. They have issues because they don't know how much to invoice their clients. There's no way to track all this stuff. So what we do really is 
have his employees track time to specific projects, first of all, so they understand how much to bill out these different clients that they have. This guy might be building, let's say, seven different websites at one time, right? It's like, how much time am I spending on each of these sites? How much do I need to bill people out? Different costs for different projects billing out different prices for different projects. So we just basically roll all that up and really help that owner understand, okay, here's what you got to work on. Every person has tasks and assignments. I can easily assign those tasks and assignments. Each of those tasks and assignments has a project, which is also as a client. So that's all streamlined. When a team member works and tracks time via the desktop app, it takes screenshots of the computer monitor. You can see the work unfold in real time. The owner can log in and see the websites that are being designed, for example, and without having to communicate as much. So we really streamline that work. All parts of the work that happens digitally you know, is really our bread and butter. I would say that's even more of a complex example for maybe someone who doesn't even understand it. Because I've hired virtual assistants. I've talked about it a lot. So people don't even understand. It's like, let's just take it as me. Maybe I want to hire a college kid to put data entry in who works in Gainesville, Florida, because they're at UF. I'm in Jacksonville, Florida. And I'm like, hey, I'll pay you 10 bucks an hour. And then I can use a screenshot software that you have and make sure they're actually working during those hours. And then let's just say they do 20 hours, then that's just one job, right? But if I'm giving multiple jobs, that's where your stuff even helps more. But if you just want to think as simple as possible, this thing makes sure that people are actually working on the things they're working on and getting these things done and giving you allocations of time. Yeah, we can automatically send payments to that person so you don't have to worry about that. And most of the people that are using the software are paid by the hours. The old way of doing it is like, okay, Charlie in Florida, you send me an invoice once a month. And then I'm going to like FreshBooks or whatever you tell me and I'm going to send you a check. So this way, it's just all done automatically where you can set the pay period. So to say to once a month, once a week, whatever you want for Charlie, Charlie tracks time and we send the payment. Oh, yeah. So I think that's a good example. Like I said, those kind of two examples, mine being much maybe simpler. Then people can understand from your more advanced thing like that your software would help even more with the multiple projects, especially because I didn't even think about that, having to figure out exactly how much time you're making to make sure the projects that you're bidding on are profitable because you did that for like a digital agency. But we could say that could work for, I guess, construction projects or different types of industries, if you will. Right. Yeah, we've got all industries coming in. Okay. It's kind of exciting just even thinking about your company is that you're in a good space for you to potentially grow. Like this is a space that's going to continually grow. I think more people are become virtual employees. And I think people are going to worry about this. How do I know that people are actually working and getting things done? And again, that's just one of the things that your software kind of helps with. But to me, even the payment stuff that you're saying seems to be pretty helpful too. Yeah, it's definitely growing. It's definitely part of the reason why we have been able to grow for sure. Like it's not a shrinking market, it's a growing market. We still feel like that market is big, but there's still only a select number of people that are actually know that a solution like this exists. We're educating right now on what the software does, right? So it's not like you just say, oh, QuickBooks, everyone knows it. You know, I'm counting software, everyone knows it. It's not like that. It's still an emerging market. So it's hard to get the word out there. And luckily, we're one of the leaders in this. So if somebody types in a keyword, like how to track remote workers or how to hire remote workers, that kind of thing, we've worked hard to have a lot of content based around those keywords so that we can help educate and introduce our brand. But it's still an education process. Because of that, it's very hard for us to do any kind of outbound sales. It's almost impossible because a construction company is like, what is this? They don't even understand what we're doing or how we're doing it. You've got to be educated and understand that there is a solution for this out there and need a solution in order for it to make sense for the company. Does that make sense? Do you remember when you started your small business? It was no small feat. It took a lot of late nights, early mornings, and the occasional all-nighter. Bottom line, 
You've been insanely busy ever since. So why not make things a little bit easier? Well, our friends at FreshBooks have the solution. FreshBooks invoicing and accounting software is designed specifically for small business owners. It's simple, intuitive, and keeps you more organized than a dusty shoebox filled with crumbled receipts. Create and send professional looking invoices in 30 seconds, and then get them paid two times faster with automated online payments. File expenses even quicker and keep them perfectly organized for tax time. And the best part, FreshBooks grows alongside your business. So you'll always have the tools you need when you need them without ever having to learn the ins and outs of accounting. So join the 24 million people who've used FreshBooks. Try it free for 30 days. No catch and no credit card required. Go to freshbooks.com forward slash MI and enter millionaire interviews and the how did you hear about us section to get started. That's freshbooks.com forward slash MI. And for more information about FreshBooks, you can go check out episode 141 where I interviewed the founder, Mike McDermott. Here's something a lot of listeners would be interested in. Orgain's grant for greater good. Orgain has given away $150,000 in grant money. So if you're a startup business working in nutrition or promoting a healthy lifestyle, then listen up. If you're like me, you know how challenging it is to start your own business. So having the right support and more money to work with can only help. That's where Orgain comes in. The Orgain is a brand that makes convenient and clean nutrition products. It was founded by Dr. Andrew Abraham, who has a great story. Basically, he developed an original nutritional shake during his fight to beat cancer in teens to help nourish himself. Andrew realized he wanted to share his recipe with the world, so he quit his job as a doctor and founded Orgain. Andrew knows from firsthand experience that people are changing the world one idea at a time, but oftentimes these ideas don't have the financial support to get off the ground, and now he wants to pay it forward. Orgain will choose three deserving startups and grant them $50,000 each to help take their businesses to the next level. So to apply for the program, your startup needs to be two years or older and in the business of promoting healthy, vibrant lives, either through nutrition, active lifestyles, or mindfulness. So the application period ends March 20th. So if you think you're a good fit, please visit orgain.com forward slash grants today to learn more. Yeah, no, I definitely agree. I guess I was just pointing out that you're in a market that's growing. And I think that's important for anyone who's listening is to make sure that you are in a market that has the potential to grow. Because I don't think we've even reached the beginning of what you could have. Because it's the same thing. I try not to relate my story as much, but it's the same thing with kind of podcasting. It's like not a lot of people know about podcasting yet, but a lot more people have learned, right? So it's much harder for me to go to my grandparents and get them to subscribe to my podcast versus a younger demographic who understands what podcasts are. For sure. Same thing with you. I've hired people off different sites like Upwork was an example, and they do something similar, but they become more of a pain and pain in the butt where your stuff kind of does the same thing. And so I understand this. So it's very easy for me to understand. Exactly. But somebody else, it's much harder for them to explain. But I think over time, both of our markets kind of just those industries will grow. It's not like you're in the paper market or like I'm doing FMAM radio where that's going to eventually die. Those are the markets you don't want to be in, the trends that are going in that way. Yep, for sure. All right. So yeah, I think we got a good understanding kind of your business and good overview. Do you want to kind of reel it back to when you graduated school and tell us about your story of how you created Hubstaff here? Yeah, sure. So basically I went to college. <laughs> Making sure you took a while to say that. 
Yeah, no, I mean, graduated in 2002. I wasn't going to say like IU, and but people probably don't know. Indiana University. Yeah. But basically, you know, graduated in 2002, went to work at a big company, Abbott Labs up in Chicago, was commuting an hour and a half every day. So my story is basically I was commuting an hour and a half each way every day, hated my job, came back home. I had a golf company at the time, e-commerce. So I was building this e-commerce business along the way when I got home. And so it was like six months just hammering down, doing it on the side, did not quit my job. And what was your job went over that quickly? I was in finance, a lot of planning, a lot of like corporate planning, that kind of thing. Excel stuff? Yes, exactly. Almost all Excel. And so basically I would get home, do that, build this golf company up. And the company just right place, the right time just kind of took off. Like it was me in a studio apartment building this thing up. It just took off. We were at, it was basically eBooks, DVDs, trading aids, that kind of thing. It was in golf instruction. It wasn't golf like clubs. So it wasn't like drop shipping anything or that kind of thing. One second. I'm going to slow you down because I can tell you talk fast, especially just at the beginning because people can relate to hating a job and driving an hour and a half, right? Oh, for sure. Did you have a passion for golf? Yeah, I had a passion for golf. And the main thing for me was I did not feel for anybody listening, trying to think to themselves like, hey, you want to jump in this thing or not? I would advise a few things. Basically, if you're bored, that's the worst. If you're bored, you cannot be doing your highest level of work. Go after something, not only in a market and industry that you're interested in, but also in a job that you're interested in doing the work. And for me, like building a company, that was always the most exciting part. So it's not that way for everybody. If you're in finance and you really like marketing, just find a company to let you work. It doesn't matter what your degree was in. I know very few people that actually use the degrees that they actually got in college. And so go after what's exciting to you. Now, I will say with that being said also, yes, I had a passion for golf at the time. Time, after seven years of running a golf business, I hated the game. So it, nothing becomes like your business at the end is a business. I got to go out there golfing every once in a while. But at the end of the day, it was advertising, sales, traffic, web stuff, building products, same as any other business. I advise sometimes to steer away from the passion almost, you know what I'm saying? Because after a while, you don't even enjoy it anymore because it's just so many ways to write copy for a golfer, you know, just get worn out. Yeah, I definitely understand that. But you need something that gets you going, I guess, initially too. Having that viewpoint of if you're doing trying to sell cooking products and you don't like to cook, you want to be doing that in the beginning. So you started off with just learning via YouTube or what to build this stuff on the side? I bought a course for a thousand bucks. Actually, my dad bought me a course. It might have been 500 bucks. It was expensive at the time. You know, it was like, okay, it made me promise if I buy you this course, are you going to invest the time and implement it? Because he heard me bitch and bitch about how I didn't like this job. And he knew I wasn't happy. So he's like, hey, I'll buy you this course if you promise to implement it. So I implemented it and just took off. Do you remember the name of the course? Yeah, it was Terry Dean's Internet Marketing Success or something like that. It was all about internet marketing, like picking a niche. And this is back in 2003 when internet marketing was new. Right. It wasn't your background or skill set. So I think finding a course or something simple to kind of get the wheels going is a good thing. Unfortunately, there's a lot of bullshit courses now that I think like entrepreneurship ones that are cost thousands of dollars that I'd be very, very weary of. But it's like basic stuff that can get the momentum going, I think is important. Yeah, this was a really good one because it was tactical. It like told me, okay, hey, go to this website and do this. When you go to the site and you do that thing, do it this way. So it was like step-by-step step how to do this. Right. So you didn't have to just envision your goals and sing Kumbaya's and it come together. Right. No, no, no. And it did teach me that there was copywriting training in there. It was pretty comprehensive. So you build this up on the side. How long did it take you to start making money with your e-commerce golf business? I was making sales probably six months in, maybe even four months in. 
and just kind of like snowballed. I mean, it, we were at 1.5 million about a year in, 12 months in. Wow. On the e-commerce golf stuff? Yes. Okay. How long did it take you to quit the job, the finance job that you didn't like? I worked in that job after I made my first sale, probably about a month and a half. So not long. I was out of there pretty quick. Only after a couple of months? Yeah. I mean, I had the job in full 18 months. I was only there a year and a half in full. So I probably didn't have this company the whole time. So it probably was a month and a half after I made my first sale that I, I was out. Okay. So yeah, you saw some momentum. I was making more money per month when I left the job through my e-commerce business than I was in my job. And that's when I knew it was time to leave. I forget the exact timing. Yeah. Well, that's fine. I mean, we don't need the exact timing, but just to focus real quick for a second on the job that you hated, was there anything that you learned from there? Was there like any bad boss? You obviously hated the commute. I learned a lot. I learned that I did not want to be in my manager's positions. I don't want to be in that spot when I'm 40 years old. I don't want to be in that spot. So you're about 24 years old and doing the e-commerce golf business. So do you want to just run us through this timeline quickly? Yeah. So I started basically expanding into DVDs, filming golf pros, working with the golf pros, designing different products. So I had like three or four different product lines at one point in time. What was the name of the website? Is it still up? Purepointgolf.com. I sold it in 2009. I really don't track it anymore. And that's been 10 years ago now. But yeah, that's where I got my jobs in terms of understanding copy, understanding marketing, understanding how to drive traffic, understanding Google advertising. That's where I got my business sense. And I realized at that point in time, some of my finance knowledge did come into play at that point in time with analytics and that kind of thing. So you have the shopping carts. And I was also always like technical. You know, I could understand how to get to HTML like a little bit, but I mean, these sites were so bad. It was funny. It was just so bad. Anyway, I move out to Phoenix with my new wife at that point in time. And how many years are you into the business at this point? Two or three. Okay. So you're 26, 27 at this point? Yeah. Okay. We got to Phoenix, try to get an office in Scottsdale where all the golfers are, like get more and more products. And basically at that point in time was trending the wrong way because it was basically just staying flat and I could see the writing on the wall. So I actually put it for sale in 2008. And we never, our biggest year was like 1.5, 1.6, 1.7 million, something like that. Maybe it was 2005 was the big year at like 1.5 million. And then it kind of was like a million dollars every year until 2009 when I had it for sale. Make sense? Yeah. So you're in Arizona, you still in the e-commerce building and you're married? Yeah. Yeah. I'm doing the thing, you know, creating a lot of videos. I write the scripts, do all the production, the videos. I have an actually producer that would do all the editing and filming, but I would be there helping to, you know, rally the troops and that kind of thing. I'd create the launches, do a lot of project management. So it was during this point in time where I was feeling the need. I had employees that came into the office, but it was like, what the heck are these people doing? Projects are always late. I can't figure out why things can't launch on time. They're sitting right in my office next to me, but I still can't figure out what the hell they're doing. They're sitting there doing their work. I can't figure out why I can't get this to roll out faster and run smoother. That was really stressing me out. So during that point in time, we would hire some remote developers. So I was in this kind of phase where I was small business. There's got to be a solution to figure this out. So that's when my mind started thinking about software like this, just to put it in perspective in like 2009 timeframe, 2008, actually couldn't find anything that wasn't totally buggy and would work for what I was looking for. Make a long story short, I ended up selling the golf company cheap, sold it for like $500,000. I ended up getting half of that. The bought into a software company because software at this point in time, and this is a good lesson too, like I knew what I wanted to do was software, 
because it was recurring revenue. It was like one product that I could resell several times because I had just gotten done with the golf e-commerce stuff. And I was like, I can sell one to one customer. And then maybe that customer might buy again, but it's hard to get that customer to buy again. I want a product that I can sell one time to the customer. They pay me every month. So I started a subscription model within the golf business. And that really was saving the day because it was a membership site charged 14 bucks a month. And that really was my first taste of recurring revenue. And so that got me thinking about software and software was kind of a rage back then, starting a little software company and that kind of thing. So anyway, sold the company, bought in with some investors to run a software company in the SEO space. What's the SEO space? So it was like a search engine product. It was like SEO services wrapped up in software. So it was helping digital marketing agencies and affiliate websites and whatever, basically get links. And I started to run that company as a CEO. And basically, that's when I learned software. So I knew I took that job. I was paid a salary as a CEO. I had to buy into the software. So I was part owner. I think I owned like 18% of it. But I worked there for about three years and really started to run a software company. And I'm glad I did that. What was the name of the company? Linkvana. Linkvana? Okay. My role there was to create the software. Not to code the software, but to make sure that the software was being developed correctly. We basically did a lot of SEO strategies for different people. It was like outsource SEO, really. Our main product was a lot of writing content. Sometimes we would place those links for them. And then other times, basically, they would buy the content and put it on their blog. So that's what the main source of revenue was from. It doesn't sound complex, but it's like there was a pretty complex software behind it. Long story short, I learned how to run a software company in that experience, which was my goal all along. Let's take a period of time here in my life, learn from my other investors that I bought into the company with, and also learn how to run a software company because I want to be in software and get paid along the way. So that was my decision. And it would be interesting, just I think all in all to go to that. So I did that. We were all remote. I started thinking more and more about creating a software like this, like Hubstaff. And I think that company was like max, like 2.5. Now it wasn't very high. It was like $2.5 million. It was good, but the profit margins are pretty low because like I said, it was content. We were writing the content, had to pay the writers. And then basically the margins weren't that high on that. Also sold that company and started Hubstaff, probably 2012. Okay. So you sold that in 2012. Basically, you're at this SEO company, if you will, for three years or so after you had sold your golf company. And then why did you really want to get out of it then? Google was changing their rules every other day. And basically, it's like, okay, this is not the long-term business to be in. Part of the thing that you said, it's not a big business, but 2.5 million is a lot if you're just looking at the revenue number. But like you said, the profits were low because you had to write everything. And then this kind of makes sense. If it's hard to track what everyone's doing and you need to track by the hour to see how much profit you can make, I guess it makes sense why you're saying you eventually kind of made hub staff. Yeah. And also I owned 18% of it. I'm an owner. Like I wanted to own. 18% wasn't extremely motivating for me. Yeah. You were in Phoenix this whole time? I actually moved back to Indiana when I started. So I moved back to Indiana about 2009. Okay. So after you sold the golf company, you moved back to Indiana and then that's when you bought into this SEO company? Yep. Okay. And did that for three years, it sounds like till 2012? Yep. Yeah. Going back to the golf thing, was part of the issue too of the sales plateauing, would that have anything to do with the recession too? It might've, for sure might've. That definitely was an impact item. It had more to do with competitors coming in. I was like first guy on the block in that business, right? And all of a sudden competitors come in. It had a lot to do with AdWords prices raising on advertising. So when I started the business, I was buying clicks for a nickel and five cents. And when I left, it was a dollar. So that's an advertising increase by whatever, 20 times, right? It was like a lot different. When I started the business, 
my demographic was mostly older males, right? They go golfing. They have time to actually golf. I mean, these people in 2003, they actually thought that I was writing personally to them. They didn't understand the concept of like a software sending an email to them. You see what I'm saying? So they thought I was their personal golf coach. So of course, conversion rates are really high, right? Because they think they're buying from a personal golf coach. All that changed in that time frame from 2003 to 2009. Now they're getting several different emails. Now they don't have three golf coaches. They don't have any personal golf coaches. So it's like the perfect storm of advertising prices increasing and conversion rates decreasing. And then from there, you said you sold the company and that you made like 250000 from it or so? Yes. I mean, after you even sold that, did you feel successful? I was happy to get the money in the bank account. I was happy to get rid of the company. Right. And then you just took that money and basically put it into this new SEO company that you bought into in Indiana? I didn't buy. I think I paid like 75000 for that. Okay. We paid as a whole with all the other investors, I think like 500000 But me personally, my share of that was like seventy five out of that 450 Okay. Well, yeah, I'm just trying to understand the flow of money, how you're feeling age-wise and everything going into it. Yeah. And I was making good money all along having the golf company. I was making pretty good money. I was happy all along, but it's still, I felt like a lot of work for the income. So, I mean, were you talking like a couple hundred K personal? I was making probably, when I ran the golf company, there was several years where it was like 500000 The more common between like 2007 to 2009 is more like probably 135, 140. Yeah, I could see too how that would be frustrating if you made so much more personally, even in those years that you're like, okay, why do I want to keep doing this? And honestly, I can see what you're saying when we talked about earlier about your passion driving down for golf. If you're like all in with shooting the videos and everything like that, it's not like you're just selling the product online and seeing it a few times a day. Exactly. So yeah, jumping back into your story is you're back in Indianapolis and then you sell your shares of the company in 2012 of this SEO company. We sold that whole thing, I think, for like 250000 So I ended up getting whatever. I think I made 120000 annually via salary to run the company. And then also any dividends on top of that. And I've always been in companies that focus on paying out dividends. If you pay out $50,000 in dividends, I was getting an extra like eight or whatever that the math works out to be. I think between eight and 12 monthly. And then I will say there was years where I didn't make anything. Right around the time where I was starting Hubstaff in 2012, my wife's a realtor, luckily, and she's making income. But I mean, there was years, be prepared to make zero at points in time. So yeah, you were always good about saving up your money? Yes, exactly. And also having very low debt. So not only have some savings to bank on, but then I was not living an extreme lifestyle. I live in Indiana for a reason, partially because my family's here and it's my home and that kind of thing, but also because price of living is so cheap. We had paid off cars that was probably $18,000 car, that kind of thing. You know what I'm saying? It's not like I'm driving a Lamborghini or anything. Yeah. That's why I try to distinguish our podcast from some others actually talking about these things. Yeah. Right. I could see a lot of people, you being younger, it seems like you're about 32 when you actually sold the SEO company, but it seems like there are a lot of successes, but you were smart about saving up your money and not just going to spend it in on everything. I've got kids at this point in time and money goes fast. Yes, I've always made decent money. And for a 22-year-old or 23 or 24 to make good money, that got me ahead of the game. Also, I've lost money doing hard money loans. So things went bad as well all during that time. Made bad decisions with businesses that have started and lost everything, but I was pretty smart about it. And I did have savings in the bank. We had our 401ks, but there was years where I didn't make a dime. And luckily, Christine, my wife, was you know making $70,000 where that was our mortgage payment. Even if you lost money on these other things, it sounded like they're business-type ventures where you're trying- Small. 
Yeah, even if it's small, but I'm not saying that you're perfect or anything. I'm just saying that you weren't spending on luxurious things like you were saying when you said the Lambo and all that stuff. That's right. I guess you're 32 and then you're selling out. So you had a couple kids at this point? Yeah, I had Sam was born in 2010 and Ethan in 2012. Okay. So you got two boys and is it still just two? Yep. Okay. So why don't you walk us through the thinking into Hubstaff as you sold the SEO company? Yeah. So, well, the main thing was through that other software, people would log in maybe twice a month, that kind of thing. Low usage. Churn was high, which churn means basically people would start a subscription and then stop it and start and stop at a higher rate. So basically the main thing was I wanted a company that was of value to my customers. And I looked at the other company as being kind of like not a value because they weren't using it. I wanted something where they're actually going to use it in their daily lives. But I can definitely see where the SEO company, if I was a user and I got my own website where I wouldn't log in as much, right? It's kind of not a required thing. But now if we're looking forward to what your company does, that's something that you almost have to, and that's integral part of their company. Right. And that's what I was looking for. I was looking for a value play. Now, that being said, like our software right now is cheap. It's not expensive. It's $5 or it's right now it's $7 a month per user. So it's not expensive software, but we are a volume kind of play in software. So it's $7 a user per user per month. So if you have seven people, it's $49 a month. So it's pretty cheap. It's even cheaper when you consider the fact that your people use it every single day, all day. But that's just the price of the market. I just can't charge a lot more than that when competitors are charging a lot less than that. Right. So it's, it, you just can't do that. But the point was, I knew that there was a need for software to help business owners keep track of their people on a day in, day out basis and help that business owner get feedback automatically from what's happening in the employees' daily lives because they cannot tell that when they are thousands of miles apart. So that was the crux of it. Did you start thinking about this? I know you said you're having these issues even sound like with a golf company, but mainly the SEO company before, before you left SEO company and sold your part or y'all sold it. Did you already have Hubstaff fully in mind, like ready to go? Or did you take some time off? No, I had it fully in mind. So yeah, you were ready to go right after you sold the other thing. It was basically go into this. We started to build it. We launched it free. And this thing takes, it's complex software. It takes a while to build up. And this was the time when I'm making zero, by the way. They had no income. So we worked on it for about a year, launched it for free. So it took a year before you even started getting customers, right? You're saying that. Yeah. And when you said you weren't making money, you were losing a lot of money, I imagine, because you're actually putting money into the business and not getting any revenue. Yeah. Well, we didn't actually put money in. Luckily, we started it with $27,000 each and my partner and I. That's a specific number. Was there a reason? I don't know. It is. I don't know why we did it that way. It was just, I think we needed a certain amount of money and this is a number. So anyway, it's been bootstrapped and cash flow positive since that day. So we spent money. We were working on it very, very slowly. It wasn't like we went and hired like three people and said, let's work on this right now and get it done in three months and then go make money and charge for it. Everyone else had full-time jobs when they were building this. So I could only get so much hours from them to actually build the product up. And I was working on the marketing at that point in time. Like I was working the marketing and copy and the web pages and the traffic and the AdWords and that kind of thing. And we were spending maybe $1,500 on AdWords per month to get in traffic. And then it just started, I was writing the articles because that's free, putting the blogs up, working on the design and all that. I was doing all of that work. Okay. And so you had said you had a co-founder too, because I might cut in more here just because these are the interesting parts to me, at least starting your first real business where you want to be the main dude. So your plan was just for that year to do these blog posts, whatever, to get the marketing in and your co-founder, you said he had a full-time job still? Yes. 
Okay. And so he was doing all the technical stuff, basically? One of the main things that I learned was I could not run a damn software company. It was too complex. It was not my strength. That's why I had to find a co-founder. And that was one of the best things I did. I split it 50-50 with him. I said, you have to come help me do this because basically I know I can't do it. I had to sell him on the idea. I had to sell him on me. We didn't know each other. I found him on LinkedIn. So there was a sales process, but at the end, he came on board and we went in to go do this thing. He was doing like all the complex stuff, like the C++, hiring people to do that on a very part-time basis, working on the APIs, doing the backend stuff, you know, Ruby on Rails. I have no idea how to do this stuff. So I was doing the front end. Yeah. You're saying that you didn't know how to manage it because you wouldn't know how to speak the language to the developers. I would have no idea how to speak that language. No idea. Okay. Well, this is pretty cool too. Though. Interesting that you said you found this guy just via LinkedIn. Why don't you tell us a little bit more about finding a co-founder? Because I think there's a lot of people out there who feel like you that maybe I need a guy who's maybe on that technical end or just walk us through that process a little bit more. That's interesting. So there's different ways of doing that. One way is like, okay, I'm going to start this company. I'm going to raise the money. I'm going to have the majority of equity. I might give away 5% to a developer that comes on board, to a CTO, because I know I need to also give away 5% to my CMO someday and 5% to somebody else. That's one model. My model was to say, let's do it differently. Let's bootstrap it. Let's not take money. Let's both pay a certain amount of dollars to actually fund the company. Let's not give any equity away to anybody. Let's keep it all. And let's just run a lifestyle business from this. And that's been the model since day one. But like I said, I needed to find somebody that could actually run this side and just talking with them. You know, he was smart. He understood. And I wouldn't have been able to do that and find the right person, I think, without those three years experience running the other software company. Yeah, that makes sense. You knew enough to know a guy if he knows all the technical stuff, but just finding that guy, did you have any connections with him or did you send him a LinkedIn message or like, tell us how that happened? Yeah, I sent him a LinkedIn message. There's actually a big blog post about it. I published like his answers and everything. It was a sales process. I introduced myself. I said, Hey, I've got this idea. He gets ideas from people left and right. Even at the time, I was a little bit different because I already had some market research done or tried to white label a product in this space. And I had some customers actually paying me money. So that was what got his attention over like just, hey, I've got this great idea. Here we go. I actually had previously two businesses that were in the multi-millions of dollars. I had paying customers for a product similar to this. I had the idea fleshed out, that kind of thing, right? So I had to talk him into it, but I had some meat to my stores. And he said he had a lot of people contacting him? Yeah. I mean, he's a developer. They get that all the time. Yeah. I mean, I have no idea. I'm not a developer. Yeah. No, they get that all the time. So if anyone's trying to message developers and they're not getting back to you, that's probably part of the reason why, right? That's why developers can pretty much charge their, tell you their rate and you've got to pay it. Yeah. What's the name of your co-founder? Jared. Yeah. Okay. Jared Brown. That's a generic one too. So just looking for anyone, was he in Indianapolis too or no? Yes. And that's important because even though I knew that I could hire people from California and I could hire people from Canada and Romania and Czech Republic and wherever else, I knew that I also want to sit down and have a beer with my co-founder. I wanted to have face-to-face. -face. I wanted to know his kids. I wanted to know his wife. I wanted him to know my kids and that kind of thing. So I wanted that connection. And I'm glad that I did that because when you start talking about that deep of a relationship, you got to trust somebody. In order to trust them, you got to know them. Hello listeners, my name is Eric and in episode 104, Austin interviewed me here on this podcast about how I built a fastest growing company and the journey to my first million. We were brainstorming about how to bring even more value to you here on the show and I offered myself up as a resource. So you can reach out to me now directly for a one-on-one -on -one 
Mono Me Mono Power Hour session to solve your business problems fast. Things like growing your team size, beefing up sales results, fixing sticky situations, taking stress off your shoulders so you can focus on what matters. All that stressful stuff that you'd like some help with. Email me directly at eric at ericgilbertwilliams.com. That's E-R-I-C at E-R-I-C-G-I-L-B-E-R-T-W-I-L-L-I-A-M-S.com. Message me on LinkedIn. We'll set up a call. We'll do the power hour session. It's on me. The first hour is no charge. Or just visit my website, driveupprofits.com. That's www.driveupprofits.com. Every successful person has a good, reliable mentor. I'd like to help you just like I'm helping out a lot of other people right now. I like to be your guy on the speed dial who, you know, someone who survived the trenches, someone you can talk to at any point in time and who cares and wants to help. I'd like to help and be that guy for you. So just email me directly, uh, message me on LinkedIn or visit my website, driveupprofits.com and we'll set up that call. There's no strings attached whatsoever. The first hour is completely on me, no charge. Reach out, let's do the call and now back to the show. Yeah, I mean, basically with your software, you can obviously hire people anywhere, but for the founder, like if y'all have really issues, this is probably the one thing you need to make sure that someone's near you, especially during the process of you finding somebody. You're not just going to offer someone $26,000, maybe just meet them once and then they live in California and you're in Indianapolis. If you're right there, then y'all get to know each other more and feel more comfortable. So you spend about a year developing the software and it sounds like you're trying to do the marketing. Yeah. And we launched it for free. We got users in, we got feedback from them. What do they like? What do they don't like? And it just kind of took off, you know, in terms of users. I think there was a point where we had like a thousand or I don't know what the number was. It was in the high hundreds, organizations or companies using the software. Was that within the first year, you would say? It's really your second year, but your first year of really launching. Yeah, but it was all free. We didn't know it was going to happen when we released it for paid. Did you really think it would take a year to develop the software? No, I had no idea. How long do you think it'd take? I, th- I thought it was going to take three months. Was there any frustration with that? Yeah, there was, but I couldn't do anything differently. I was locked in. I was excited about the product still. I was locked in. I understood at that point in time why it was taking so long. I mean, I was sitting there. My job during that point in time, big part of my job was testing the damn thing. So I would test on Mac and I would test on Windows and I would report bugs. There's a long process when you're developing for a desktop app. That's another piece of advice that I would give. If you're going to develop something, if you're going to go in software at some point in time, do web only, like desktop. Like right now, we have Chrome, Windows, Mac, two different forms of Linux, iOS, Android. That's it. Yeah, I get that. That is complex. It's a lot of people to hire, to have to, and a lot of maintenance to have to worry about. It's literally like having seven products in one. It sounds like it, because even if you're talking about just an app developer, they're kind of just talking about Android and iOS, although there's different versions of like Android where it might not work. But even with this, when you're talking about desktop too and doing all this other stuff. And, and those are different people, like in general. Right. Luckily, like our backends in C++, but Apple's in Objective-C and Android's like Java. So those are different languages. Even the same person couldn't even develop those apps back in when we started to do this whole thing. So I guess you understood after it started taking a while. And as long as you're seeing progress and you're testing all that stuff, but also I guess you understood that he had a full-time job too, even though y'all are 50-50 partners, you're like, you realize only so much time. So were you putting in a lot of hours to market it before you even got these first trial customers? We were, yeah. We were putting in, I think that it was kind of the same time. We were marketing it and getting users and getting feedback all at the same time. It wasn't like one came before the other really. I was just wondering if you had any motivation or hiccups where you're like, shit, I mean, this ever going to get launched? 
No, I mean, it was more excitement because it was, I knew what was going to happen. I could feel the positive momentum. I had come from a business that was not getting many users. I was going into a business that was getting users without us doing much marketing. So I understood that there was better days ahead. Right. The positive momentum for you was you weren't making money yet, right? So that wasn't, but it was the customers that you're seeing get in there. So there's different motivation. That's what I'm saying is this, if you weren't getting anywhere, it would be frustrating. You put in maybe less hours, but if you're getting riding this wave, then okay. So your first year, you're just still making zero money because y'all had demo customers. I don't know the number of customers, but basically we launched it. We got $3,000 a month in recurring revenue. So now we're at 560, I think, something like that. But it's all been a very linear type line. It hasn't been like up and down, up and down, up and down, or exponential, like where you were at. It's just been very linear, straight line. What I mean by that is basically every month we add between 8,000 and 12,000 net in income. What we thought was going to happen is like, oh, when we have 40,000 people using this software. That's more people talking about it. That should be exponential growth. It hasn't been because of churn. People leave. Dude, you just skipped over the last five years of your story, which is good. We see the projection after your first year of really getting customers. Just walk us through kind of step-by-step, if you don't mind. I guess we know what kind of happened at the end, that it's been kind of linear and knowing your expectations. But how about year two of the customers, year three? Anything else that as far as like hiccups? More testing, more product issues, more feedback from customers more features being developed, a lot of marketing, a lot of hiring. We didn't really take any personal income from the company until probably 2015. So you went like three years without any money. Yeah. When did your co-founder leave his job? He always consulted on the side. So it wasn't like until like a year ago where I had him like full time, but he left that job probably 2016. So maybe two or three years into the business. Which I was fine with, you know, the dude is a super hard worker. So basically it wasn't like he was coming in, not thinking about the software. He was excited too. He was super excited about it. It wasn't like he wasn't coming home at night. He would work from different hours. I like to stop and spend time with my family and chill out. He would spend time with his family, also his young family, but then he would kind of get back on and do a lot of work at night. And that's kind of like his PowerPoint. And then he just does that. And we communicating or working or texting or that kind of thing. Right. I mean, there's plenty of people who spend God's notes how much time on social media and Netflix and stuff. And you're saying that heads down power through. Right. Yeah. Just because he had this other job and it took some time away. But obviously, as long as you're communicating with your co-founder and kind of understanding that, that's why I was making sure that we didn't have any like co-founder issues with that or no. anything else that we could learn. So it just ended up being steady growth for about six years. It sounded like if that brings us up today, right? Yeah. And it's been along the way for me being quote unquote, the CEO, it's just been a lot of product development. Like, where do we want to go with this thing? What's the best path to go? Because I mean, honestly, we're not really operating. The remote space is good, but we're also trying to get a little more general to branch out to actually serve customers that are have people in an office space and are together like on a daily basis. So we're not only in the remote space anymore. So what do you mean by that for someone who's together? Is it a different product line or something? No, it sounds different product. It's just like, for example, we're integrating with ADP, W2 employee ADP. So it's like, okay, we're looking and saying, well, a customer that is more sitting in the same office day in, day out, could be a manufacturing plant, could be a restaurant, whatever. They are not using PayPal to pay their people. They're using ADP. They're using paychecks, right? That kind of things. I don't even know what ADP is, honestly. ADP is one of the biggest payroll companies, like W2 payroll companies. Okay. And so you're integrating with them. Couldn't they just use Hubstaff and it'd be automatically integrated or no? That's the only thing I'm confused by. 
Well, now we have to build that integration. So that's what I'm saying. Before we were all fully built around PayPal, TransferWise, Payoneer, a lot of payment integrations that a company like you and I would use, we've got freelancers doing work for us. Well, another company that's like a, let's say they're a manufacturing company, they're like PayPal. That's how I pay my friends. That's not how I pay my employees. I pay my employees through a regular check. They clock in and clock out and I pay them with a W-2 check. You've got to take their taxes out and all that stuff. So we then pass the hours that that employee works over to ADP, takes care of the payments. So yeah, it's a way more frustrating for y'all to, as a hub staff to try to integrate that complexity. We just pass the hours either way, but we've got to build out the integration. So my point though, is as a company, you were talking like, hey, the remote wave, that kind of thing. And yes, that is a big part of it. We also have customers coming in the door that are not remote that are like, hey, we want to pay you and we would like to use your product, but you don't have any good payment integrations. My point is that the customers tell us what to build. As we get customers in the door, they give feedback. We build what the customers need. And that's been the majority of what we've done over the past five years is building what customers tell us they need. So this is the next main thing. So how long does it take to develop something that integrates with ADP? We build every year. That might be a five-month project right there. And every year we do maybe 15 of those projects that I just mentioned, like different integrations, different features, different new stuff, calendar views, different views, report enhancements, just a lot of product focus. Do you have any other words of wisdom for anyone who else is growing their own business here? Yeah, no, not really. I mean, I, I think the majority of my experience has been said today. And you know, I'd say just go do it. Have the balls to take that first step. I think that the best thing about having your own company is that even if you fail, even if you don't hit it big or whatever, it's still like better in most cases than working for somebody else who's going to tell you what to do and you're pigeonholed into this one small area that you got to focus on. And the reason why I say that, it's like if I failed, if I decided I wanted to go back into a job at the end of my software company, I could speak. Usually I would be talking with wanting to go work with a small company. I'd be talking, interviewing with the founder of the company. I could speak their language at that point in time. I could talk to them. They would understand somebody applying for a job. I had been through it several times now, you know what I'm saying? And so even having done that, you learn finance, you learn accounting, you learn the marketing aspects, you learn traffic, you learn conversions, you learn tools and all these different things. And it's like being able to go into an interview with that breadth of knowledge is really invaluable. So I've always gained a lot of confidence actually, even though I had two companies that went up and then kind of failed. I still had confidence going in because I knew I knew so many different things. So that makes sense. I mean, I guess the one thing I wanted to say was you're going to get value from doing your own thing, even if it's on the side of your current job. It's like you're going to learn things, apply to the job, move up faster, just learn a lot of stuff. And ultimately, what was the hardest thing of your whole story? Because honestly, I mean, looking back, I don't think anything was super devastating. No. Luckily, it was not. The hardest part was, I guess, just those few years being like, okay, well, I got to figure out something. I was at the point where I was like, okay, I'm going to have to go work for somebody because I need some income. So that's business-wise. Even personally, it seems like everything's been okay. Personally, luckily, my wife, her husband, or her dad was an entrepreneur. So she's always been very supportive of me. That's important. Got to have a support system in place. I think personally, just the core desire to go out and make your stuff happen and create new things. I mean, it, I just have that innately. So I think that it would be a lot harder for me if I didn't have that. And some people don't have that. 
It's not easy being an entrepreneur. It's not easy in any way because you don't have anybody telling you what to do. You don't have somebody saying, okay, here's the system. You got to go figure that out. And so figuring it out is the hard part. Every day, am I investing my time wisely? Every single day, it's like that. And then it's like, okay, now I'm paying money. I'm paying people to go implement my ideas. Is that the right move? You're wrong a lot. You're wrong a ton. And so you got to be able to deal with that failure. Do you ever feel lonely doing this? I do not, but that's because I'm a loner in the first place. <laughs> gotcha. All right. Well, thank you, Dave, for coming on here. If someone wanted to reach out and say thank you for doing the interview, what's the best way for them to reach you? Social is at Hubstaff or my email is dave at hubstaff.com. And it's pretty easy. Well, thank you for joining us, Dave. All right, man. Thank you. If you're looking for other tech-based interviews, then consider episode 60 with Cam Duty. Episode 55 with Thorne Rodriguez, or episode 50 with Max and Pedro from Winding Tree. Y'all all-